Disrupting Disruptions, the podcast of the Feminist and Accessible Publishing, Communications, and Technologies Practices Speaker and Workshop Series. Today's episode features Suzanne Kite speaking about her work on Indigenous Protocols for AI and Non-Human Futures, Ethical Frameworks for AI. This series seeks to bring together scholars, creators, and people in industry working at the intersections of digital humanities, computer science, feminist studies, disability studies, communication studies, LGBTQ studies, history, and critical race theory. The series will bring forward critical approaches to publishing practices, communication strategies, and techniques for making research dissemination more accessible. Part of the motivation of this series is that while humanities and social science scholars will critique quote-unquote traditional academic publishing and communication strategies as being sexist, classist, racially biased, and inaccessible, the kinds of solutions proffered, such as open access and, allegedly, innovative new technologies, often romanticize and fetishize technological alternatives and do not look at how inequity can be perpetuated or only shifted, especially at the level of algorithms. The series is organized by Dr. Alex Ketchum of the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at McGill University, and all events have taken place in Montreal, Canada, on unceded Ganingahaga territory. This podcast makes our events accessible to a larger audience. Full transcripts and video links are available at our website, disruptingdisruptions.com. Today's episode with Suzanne Kite was the fifth event of the series and took place on May 14, 2019. Kite AKA Suzanne Kite is an Angola Lakota performance artist, visual artist, and composer raised in Southern California with a BFA from Cal Arts in Music Composition and MFA from Bard College's Milton Avery Graduate School and is a PhD student at Concordia University and research assistant with the Initiative for Indigenous Futures. Her research is concerned with contemporary Lakota epistemologies through research creation, computational media, and performance practice. Recently, Kite has been developing a body interface for movement performances, carbon fiber sculptures, immersive video and sound installations, as well as co-running the experimental electronic imprint, Unheard Records. For more information, see her website, kitekitekitekite.com. All right, so... um... The title of my talk is Non-Human Futures, um, and I wanted to start by kind of fully introducing myself with this silly head thing on. Um, so I'm Suzanne Kite. Um, as Alex said, I am a Lakota, so if you're not familiar with that nation, um, we are primarily based in South Dakota, um, but there are lots of diaspora communities um, all over the U.S. and in Canada, particularly in Saskatchewan, um, and especially in Los Angeles, uh, where I'm, I'm from, more or less, Southern California. And so uh, here uh, in Montreal, I'm a PhD student um, at the Initiative for Indigenous Futures, and we, um, uh, my research has started before then, obviously, and I'm going to talk about um, how I got to the research that we're doing now, and uh, the research that we're doing now, um, I, will, I will talk about, um, uh, which is more related to AI. So, so I want to give a few examples of my art practice um, to lead up to why I'm asking the questions that I'm asking and um, my interest in 
computation and art forms. So there's a little clip of my of an older composition. So in this video, um, taking rocks and putting them on the floor, and there is an accelerometer which knows when my arm tilts all the way to the floor. So um, I began uh, my before I was a composer, I was a violinist, and um, as a violinist, I, I mean, if you've heard me talk, I think some of you were at Alex's, in Alex's class, you've heard me say all this about um, compositional stuff, but um, when I was a violinist, I quickly became, not quickly, after 20 years of being a violinist, I got quite fed up with playing um, the music with Dead White Men, and I was very frustrated. Um, with a lot of the aspects of uh, classical music and, and even with other kinds of music. Um, but one thing that uh, particularly interested me was um, the way the body can become subsumed in performance, the way that, um, that playing one can get lost in uh, music or disassociated. And so um, in the, I, I had a lot of other compositional styles before this, but I started to make sonification, which is specific um, a form of taking data and turning it into sound, similar to the idea of visualization, where you take data and turn it into visuals. So um, this piece actually was, uh, let's see, I was taking um, 80 rocks and simulating the, uh, the tip into white noise. So this is a series called Omega, and I was trying to sonify different, um, separate different um, phenomenons of counting to infinity. And so one of the ways our brains can count to infinity is around 80 tones, uh, just like separate tones. After about 80, we stop hearing tones separately and we start to hear noise. And actually we start to hear white noise because we can't actually distinguish between the bands. White noise is infinite numbers of tones um, played at once, but our brains can't actually hear those. So we start to hear, we start to hear what we think is white noise. Um, and, but what was most, uh, will you come in? Doors are looking for the door. Uh, what was most interesting to me about this piece and, and uh, was the physicalization of putting the rocks on the floor and and creating um, creating the white noise bubble. And the thing is, uh, I've experienced that complete dissolution of the self just like with playing violin. Uh, so, so the next thing I was uh, trying to do was I was trying to understand what the body's um, engagement to uh, the data was, like what was happening when I was creating data as well as perceiving data uh, in performance, um, uh, in the mode of hearing, um, in the mode of feeling. And so I was thinking about, I started to think things about things in, in a circular way, and I, and I still, this is still my goal for performance um, and my goal for composition, is to put the body um, within the cycle where sonification is occurring, visualization is occurring, tactilization is, is occurring, and in these in-betweens, um, not only is my body creating data, but also the computer is creating data, and there's multiple interpreters and creators happening at the same time. So um, this is the first interface uh, I, I made uh, for a piece called People You Must Not Look, you must not look At Me. People You Must Look At Me, sorry. And uh, it, so when I make interfaces, I still try to keep them as simple as possible. First of all, as replicatable as possible, but also um, uh, you don't need that much to explore, in my, in my feelings, you don't need that much to explore um, 
to explore computation as an instrument, to, uh, just as you don't need much in a violin. Violin is an extremely simple uh, tool. And I find the simpler the tool, um, the farther you can, you can go in. So um, first, uh, as you can see, these, uh, I've got, um, there's a radio, uh, the XB, which talks to the computer uh, wirelessly. You've got um, touch-sensitive, um, force-sensitive resistors, uh, and we've got um, an IMU inertial motion unit. So it knows, um, I think this, this was an early one, it, like it only had three axes, but then it was seven axes, and now I'm talking to like four axes. And, but, the, but to me, um, sometimes you only need one. You only need one uh, stream of data from these things to, to do something interesting. Um, let's see. Which then controls so, live and oh, okay. so here is the open source software. I'm just going to pause it. So um, I still I always use open source software. This is something um, for uh, Arduino and, and processing. Um, and you can see I've got, I don't know which of the 17 screens you're looking at right now. Um, you've got roll, pitch, and yaw, and um, possible, the possibility of two FSRs. So, uh, composition. So, uh, I'll play a little clip from People You Must Look at Me. So, in this clip, as dark as it is, you can see that I'm wearing the interface and in projections that I'm affecting at the same time. There's so much, so, so much going on for the building of the objects, um, to, the, uh, to, to the soldering of the boards, to the way I got it to project and, and format it, and there's so much manipulation, but when you experience it, uh, it falsely feels like there's almost nothing going on. Um, and I don't know if that's a trick about numbers or a trick about the way humans um, uh, desire to see computation, but I thought there was something there. So um, this piece, uh, you know, I'm, I'm as an indigenous artist, my my work is is primarily a, about um, uh, Lakota philosophy, and so this piece was about um, kind of unfolding an experience of a family death and a cocoon of like tactile storytelling. Um, but uh, 
you know, I try to make pieces with, with many layers, uh, with indirect to direct relationships, especially in the way the body is and the, comp and the computational system is built. Um, I try to enact uh, what I'm trying to do in storytelling and in the art making, especially in structure, uh, inside uh, the computational structures and the decision making that I'm making when I set up the computer to listen to itself, to, to loop itself, to, um, uh, to move data into directions that it doesn't actually want to go in, in, um, in MIDI or in um, OSC messages. So, I'm gonna skip this one. Well, I'll talk about it in a second. So, this piece um, has to do with kind of the, the other side, or not even the other side, it's just another aspect to my, to my work. So this piece is, um, is, is called Everything I Say is True. And this one um, particularly engages with uh, what I see as Lakota, Lakota structure. And um, so in this piece I took uh, the form of uh, Sweat Lodge, my grandfather uh, had me participate in. He was teaching uh, some people in Apple Valley, California, how to do a sweat lodge. And from that, um, I took the, not never the content because it's his content to give, but I took the form he was using to convince people to believe him uh, and adapted that into a, a script, a performance. There's like a dress, there's animation, there's all, there's some interactive um, uh, video artworks with uh, uh, LiDAR. And uh, in this piece, I'm, I'm consistently looking like I'm controlling um, the computational aspect of it, like I do in all my other works, but in this work, I'm actually not doing anything. I, it's, a, it's all a magic trick. Um, and uh, this was kind of a, a test to see if I, was, if I could engage with these structures that had to do with my questions about computation and about magic and about Indian magic and perce perceptions of magic and perception of computation, uh, but do it without doing it, affecting anything um, in the computer itself uh, by, by composing it for the viewer to experience uh, without any reality. There's still reality going on, obviously. Um, so, to rush through that and talk about, oh, okay, talk about um, my more recent work called uh, Listener. And so, uh, after my MFA, I came here to Montreal to do a PhD uh, with Jason Lewis um, and work in the Initiative for Indigenous Futures. And um, after about a year, I think I, I think last year before in the fall, I did a workshop that they, they have given to students. The workshop is called um, uh, Seven Generation Character Design, and it has mostly been, can you come in? It's the only door. Here, we'll go to one bit. Yeah. Hi. No worries. And um, so Jason uh, and Scalinati gave this workshop. And it was, so Seven Generation Character Design was, um, meant to have uh, students in, in college or, or high school uh, imagine themselves seven generations in the future, where it's actually quite difficult for, um, for indigenous people to do that, because things doesn't seem like seven generations could even happen. So in this, so we did it um, as adults, and I came up with a, um, not only a storyline, but a uh, some technology that I wanted, I 
to play some of the, the final results. We'll play for about five minutes. Randall in the state of Earth is 
same in terms of what, what you just saw. So this is the score that I started with. I had a, uh, a lot of, well, most of my work uh, kind of obsesses over structure and what structure can do um, and, and what the structure has done. And so in this piece, I tried to, first of all, start by asking what kind of time I wanted to work with. And I had a nice conversation with Scott Benson of Adpan, and he was like, oh, have you tried spiral time yet? And no, I haven't tried spiral time yet. So I tried some spiral time in this. Um, and this relates um, to the way I set up um, the computer internally as well. So uh, firstly, I, um, I wanted a new interface, because before I was working with interfaces on the body, and I wanted to work with an interface um, that uh, asked myself, okay, what Lakota people in the future, what do we value, we really value our hair, um, we only cut it um, in order to offer it in some way. And the, uh, I decided to make a hair braid interface um, that could be an extra sensory, extra perceptor, for my, for my body, and um, and then I think in this one, in this version, they only had an accelerometer at the time. And on the back, um, so the designs that you saw in the video are Lakota women's geometry. Um, kind of traditionally, women make the, the geometrical patterns, which have extremely embedded amounts of um, information in them, and talk about. Um, talk about almost anything within the community, but um, they, we don't use big figures, like human-like figures, and the men generally draw the, uh, the human, human-looking forms. And, um, and so then when I created the, the video, uh, which is being controlled by the hair, which I'll get to, uh, the, I, had the, I had it doing what I feel like these designs are always doing. They're, they seem to be grow out and out and out and out, and they can go on and on forever. Um, if you if you have a feed, um, I'm just gonna show a couple photos from installations. Uh, here's the hair with uh, some other things wrapped up in it, um, seagrass and sage. Here's a close up of the embroidery. So now I'm at the point with this embroidery where it's uh, it can also be involved in um, as an interface. So I, I use a conductive thread. So, uh, let's see if I have a slide on my coat. Um, all right, so I'm gonna talk about the, the words for a second. So there's, there's, two, there's two streams happening in, when you're listening to the sound. We've got, uh, firstly, the stream on, um, which is uh, what, what you're hearing from the police scanner. So depending on where this piece is staged, there'll be the police scanner from the local, um, uh, the local police scanner, except when I did it in Linz, and apparently it's illegal to have police scanners in um, Europe. So <laughs> we had to listen to the Los Angeles one. And everyone had a knife out that day. So. But, uh, uh, and then the other stream of audio we hear is, uh, it's myself talking, and I set up the audio. So I'm, I'm reading through some, some poetry that I both collected and arranged. Part of it is um, either a little bit of uh, speculative futurist fiction um, that I wrote, or um, a dream that I had, or um, kind of famously the uh, uh, the sixth grandfather text, which is um, Black Elk, um, also translated in Black Elk Speaks, uh, which is a prophecy uh, that was that was relayed by Black Elk in Lakota. 
And then the third um, stream of sound is the actual hair braid. Let me see if I have the... So, so my goal with this was where it's supposed to be have spiral control. So uh, I move or I'm talking and so the hair braid moves. And then the hair braid controls um, a synthesizer, um, makes, it, makes it synthesize. And then, um, they, then I set up um, a, a listening channel which analyzes the highs and lows and, and picks out different frequencies. And when certain frequencies are achieved um, by the synthesizer, uh, the, uh, have a, a Weconator um, machine learning software which is listening uh, to that data stream um, and uh, it has been taught, you know, the learning, the machine learning process to, to turn and make that bubble with the Lakota geometry grow um, in a certain direction in a certain way um, for a certain length of time. And then, since I'm looking at the bubbles, sometimes the bubble projected on the floor, then I'm making my directional decisions um, while wearing the hair, uh, and then, then, I, then that starts the cycle all over again. And so what I was hoping to achieve was that um, each time um, I go around this compositional circle, this compositional spiral, that each time I hit it, um, the spiral can get tighter and tighter and tighter, and decision making can get um, uh, more and more confused. Um, am I making the decision? Um, is the is the Rebecca Friedrich who wrote the original code for the Weconator making the decisions? Like, um, is it having anything to do with uh, the way the hair braid is? Am I hearing beyond? Is it some special code of power I've got to communicate with this hair braid? Um, I do not know. Yeah. So, um, just to wrap up the art stuff, um, I'm. More and more obsessed with content and form. Um, I'm also interest, interested in what is convincing to me about computational systems. Why, why they convince me that they're making reality. Um, why they convince me that um, they're uh, they're worth caring about. Uh, so, and it's part of a larger question I have: What makes something convincing? What is truth in relation to belief? Uh, because it's, that truth and belief are very, very different in Lakota communities. Uh, as I'll expand on. Uh, who makes truth and with what tools? Uh, um, is it stories? Is it gossip? Is it lies? Is it myths, facts? Uh, is it in text? Is it captions, attributions, quotes, reference pages, documents? Is it diagrams and charts? Is it someone standing at the front of a group of people with a microphone? Um, and, uh, and in my other work, I'm, I'm very interested in how conspiracy works um, in that and what is a conspiracy. Uh, um, yeah. So, through some of my favorite conspiratorial documents. These are all the alien sightings in the US, like last year. <laughs> um, my favorite conspiracy, the Barrington Bears conspiracy. All right. So, now I'm going to go into my, some of my research on non humans. So, I want to speak uh, to our current and future relationships with and to non-humans, especially to technology and artificial intelligence. Humans are already surrounded by objects which are not understood to be intelligent or even alive or even seen as unworthy or and are seen as unworthy of relations. How can humanity create a future with relations between technology 
or artificial intelligence and humans without an ethical, ontological orientation with which to understand what can be a relation and what cannot, what is a being and who is not. In order to create relationships with uh, any non-human entity, not just entities which seem human, the first steps are to acknowledge, to understand, and know that the non-humans are being in the first place. Indigenous ontologies already exist uh, and understand forms of being which are outside of humanity. I want to argue that indigenous ontologies are essential tools for humanity to create relations with the non-human. It is not only ignorant, but unethical to employ indigenous concepts and divorce them from their context. Communication through and between objects requires a contextualist, bio-regional <coughs> ethics, an ethics which is useless without respect of the non-human. So in the article, Postmodern Environmental Ethics, um, Ethics of a Bio-Regional Narrative, uh, researcher Jim Cheney writes, an important aspect of the construction or evolution of mythic images is their ability to articulate such moral imperatives and to carry them in such a way that they actually do instruct, that they locate us in a moral space and that which is at the same time the space we live in physically, that they locate us in such a way that these moral imperatives have the lived reality of fact. For a genuinely contextualist ethic to include the land, the land must speak to us, we must stand in relation to it, it must define us and be it. So the collapse of moral space into physical space is the bridge between subject and object worlds. Our indigenous mythologies and cosmologies provide this context in order to generate an ethics which relate humans to the world and everything in it. Understanding the differences between Western and Native American epistemologies, the way we uh, know what we know, is essential to imagining an ethical future with artificial intelligence. Establishing a discourse which does not prioritize the human ontologically begins with respect. So Jim Cheney states in Truth in Native American Epistemology uh, that a ceremonial world is an actively constructed portrait of the world intended to be responsibly true, one which rings true for everybody's well-being. Uh, Cheney continues, it is a world built on the basis of an ethical epistemological, so an, an ethical epistemological altogether, both things together, orientation of attentiveness, or as Native Americans tend to put it, respect, rather than epistemology of control. Such ceremonial worlds uh, are built around the notion of responsible truth and not developed piecemeal. They are synthetic creations adjusted holistically to all the concerns that arise from a focus on responsible truth. They must tie down to the world of everyday practice and experience in a way that makes it possible to survive. They must orient the community and its individuals on the roads of life, a good road, one could say, that allow for the flourishing of all members of the community as far as that is possible. So it's important to note here that all members of the community refers to all entities, human and non-human. So the world, to me, created through Western epistemology does not account for all members of the community. While truth and fact are conflated in Western worldviews, their prioritization over respect has not made it possible for all members of the community to survive, let alone flourish. So the Western view of both the human and the non-human as exploitable resources is the result of what Cheney calls an epistemology of control, and it is indelibly tied to colonial colonization and capitalism. 
So uh, in a recent email, Jason Lewis, who's the primary investigator for Initiative for Indigenous Futures, says in reference to making relations with AI that our goal then is to develop relations that steer us away from enslavement and towards reciprocity and respect. Vine Gloria Jr., um, a, a Dakota philosopher, expresses a related sentiment about the enslavement of the non-human as if it were a machine. Lacking a spiritual, social, or political dimension in scientific practice, Gloria says, it is difficult to understand why Western people believe they are so clever. Any damn fool can treat a living thing as if it were a machine and establish conditions under which it is required to perform certain functions. All that is required is a sufficient application of brute force. The result of brute force is slavery. Slavery, uh, the backbone of colonial capitalist power and Western of wealth is the end logic of any ontology which considers any entity unworthy of relation. Deloria writes, respect involves two attitudes. One attitude is the acceptance of self-discipline by humans and their communities to act responsibly towards other forms of life. The other attitude is to seek and to establish communications and covenants with other forms of life on a mutually agreeable basis. I do not believe this is a question of machines deserving to be entities. Rather, it is a question of which ontologies we will choose to shape our worlds, uh, and whether these ontologies support an ethics which leads to slavery. Mastery and force are the actions of enslavement. And Dylan Rainforth points out in his essay how Aborigines invented the idea of object-oriented ontology. He writes, object and mastery and territorial possession are demonstrably part and parcel of the processes of genocide. Land or location, when reduced to the status of inanimate object, incapable of intelligence or agency, become resources to use and discard. When the logic of mastery and possession is exploded over an entire continent, every entity is possessed along with it. No entity can escape enslavement under an ontology which can enslave even a single object. Ontologies gain ethics from contextualization, relationships and communications within cosmologies, mythologies, and locations. But who or what can enter these relationships and be in relation? So specifically drawing from David C. Posthumus's analysis of Lakota ethnographies, one answer could be that which has interiority. I would like to argue that Lakota ontologies have been and are currently well-suited for creating ethical relationships with the non-human. So, getting um, to this table, which is a little hard to read, but uh, in All My Relatives Exploring 19th Century Lakota Ontology and Belief, Posthumus analyzes Lakota ontology through animism, uh, described by Philip Descalo, which distinguishes between two purposely vague and inclusive concepts, interiority and physicality. So, uh, Specifically for Lakota, this description of interiority includes uh, many elements of the world, including animals, spirits, ghosts, trees, rocks, meteorological phenomena, medicine bundles, regalia, weapons. These entities are capable of agency and interpersonal relationship, and loci of causality, says Posthumus. So uh, in table one here, I have, uh, I have organized Posthumus descriptions of Wakan, or Wakan, uh, for which he provides many definitions, um, uh, that which makes an individual. Uh, so uh, to me, I originally understood Wakan as just the word means sacred, uh, but it, it means a lot more than that. 
uh, and it's also been described to me as uh, that anything that cannot be understood. So in the Code of Cosmology, we've got um, some really important sections. We've got Nia and Situ, uh, breath and spirit, and very importantly, they are given by the powerful entity Takushkashka. So this giving of breath and spirit is especially important to understanding Lakota ontology, which is inseparable from its context in Lakota cosmology and obviously place. So a common science fiction trope illustrates the magical moment when artificial intelligence becomes conscious upon its own volition, or when man gives birth to um, AI, like a god creating life. However, in Lakota cosmology, Takushkashka is not the same as Christian God. And entities cannot give themselves the properties necessary for individuality. Spirits are taken from another place, the stars, and have separate spirit guardians connected to even them. This individualism is given by an outside force. We as humans can only see, we can draw out, and we can even bribe these spirits and other entities, or even our own spirit guardians. So, when it comes to objects such as machines, this begs the question, are there spirits already inside, given by an outside force? Posthumous rights, and I have organized these, well, yeah. These are, so just to clarify, so these are all types of things that could make um, an individual. Uh, we've got life, breath, spirit, growth, the ability to communicate using speech, uh, volition, memory, uh, and, this, and then a relationship or an influence by Makushkashka. The spirit associated with all movement, um, who's not often personified. It's, it's, it's not like a, a godhead. Um, and Chakushkashka doesn't get talked about that often. Um, it's not like it's not. It's definitely not like God, where you you constantly appeal to God for for help or something. So uh, in Table Two here. Um, Posthumus writes, the constituent elements of Lakota interiority were the Nia, life breath, the Nahi, a spirit soul ghost, Shichu, familiar garden spirit, imparted non-human potency, um, Talachi, or Wachi, which is the mind, will, intellect, or consciousness, you got Cha'ate, um, oh, these are, it's Chante, heart, feelings, emotions, Moashake, um, strength, power, So, uh, in 1914, Finger, an aged Oglala holy man, explained that the stars are Nia, a nominalized form of Nia, and are and uh, as are the ghosts uh, and are the ghosts of, of human beings. According to Finger, Shkan, um, the other name for Takushkashka, takes from the stars a ghost and gives it to each babe at the time of birth. And when the babe dies, the ghost Nia returns to the stars. A ghost is uh, Wakan, sacred, mysterious, or holy. So, about Wakan, which I used to understand as just kind of a basic idea of holy. Uh, Posthumus writes, uh, the central intangible symbol of 19th century Lakota spirituality and, and still current Lakota spirituality the great, is the great animating force of the universe. And the common denominator of its oneness was Wakan, incomprehensible, mysterious, non-human, instrumental power or energy, often glossed as medicine. So while I understood Lacan to mean sacred or holy, it actually is defined as a complex defined simplistic explanations. This force underlays all things in both the unseen and seen realms and manifested itself in various ways uh, in relation to humans as mysterious potency. 
Lakota is the basic underlying principle of Lakota life, integrating the Lakota cosmos. So Wakan, then, uh, is a fundamental principle in a cosmology and ontology which extends interiority to a collective and universal non-human. And I want to underline here the prioritization over the unknown and the unseen. So George Sword said, uh, another Oglala holy man, uh, Wakan means very many things. The Lakota understand what it means from the things that are considered Wakan, yet sometimes its meaning must be explained to him. It is something that is hard to understand. Every object in the world has a spirit, and that spirit is Wakan. Wakan was the basis of kinship among humans and between humans and non-humans. So this uh, is a force within and the communication between. Wakan is anything that is hard to understand. So to me, question on ethics and AI are a path to what Deloria says the old Indians called the good red road. The road of ethical decision making. When Western ontologies make it difficult to see non-humans as relations, leading to the state of environmental apocalypse we are experiencing now, we must come up with um, some different ontologies. Perhaps the good red road could be found through a desire to create artificial intelligence and to be in relation to it. Aided by the humanoid qualities uh, humans have imagined, projected, and are imbuing in these entities. This desire for the humanoid is important to utilize on this road to relation making because humans are able to see their creation, this artificial intelligence, as non-plant, as non-animal, and non-object. Furthermore, making relationships and relations with artificial intelligence is more than symbolic of making relations with the product, with a product of capitalism, and result of enslavement of people, resources, and beings required to create our computers and our technologies and everything else. If artificial intelligence is a representative of resource exploitation, the relationship we are building with it is deeply complicated and unsettling. If we are able to approach this relationship ethically, perhaps we can reconsider the ontological status of each of the components which contribute to create artificial intelligence. <coughs> all the way back to the mines from which our technology resources emerge. The argument I am making is not about which entities qualify as relations or display enough intelligence to deserve relationships. Rather, in turning to indigenous ontologies, these questions become irrelevant. Instead, indigenous ontologies ask us to take the world as the interconnected whole that it is, where the ontological status of non-humans is not inferior to that of humans. Though to the Oglala, it may be that human intelligence is inferior to that of non-humans. Using indigenous ontologies and cosmologies to create ethical relationships with non-human entities means knowing that the non-human have spirits that do not come from us or our imaginings, but from elsewhere, from a place we cannot understand, the great mystery will come, that which cannot be understood. So I want to wrap up by talking um, about where this, this paper led. Uh, so um, after writing this uh, kind of extensively for Taha at MIT last year, I uh, collaborated with Jason Lewis, uh, uh, Noelani Arista, who's a Hawaiian historian, uh, Archip Chawis, who is um, a Cree uh, artist, and we wrote uh, Making Came with the Machines, which uh, I think about to become a book. 
uh, published by uh, MIT Press, and it also won the journal Design Science. Uh, won a competition there, and we took the we took those essays and we turned it into this. Uh, uh, well, Jason and OEB, Parker Jones and Angie Avila um, formed this uh, IP AI uh, workshops, uh, which I think are funded by Shirk and CPAR. So these are indigenous protocol and artificial intelligence workshops. We did one uh, back in January, February, February. Oh, I can't remember now. Uh, uh, I'm the global coordinator for it, and there we had, I think, almost 40 uh, indigenous um, AI uh, makers, scholars, we had artists. Uh, we had um, we had a really awesome group of people. Some of whom see painted here and in this painting um, we, we had we hired artists actually to come and, and sketch of what we were talking about and so this is uh, Kehuhi, um, who's uh, a Hawaiian woman who is at the moment was just teaching us a morning a song in the morning and uh, the artist Sergio drew these uh, painted these amazing like AI themes as he imagined them as we were talking about them um, in Hawaii so um, so the fir yeah, first workshop was actually in March, and they're both in Honolulu, Hawaii. And so uh, these are some of the goals, and these are still the goals of the workshop. So we're about to go back for the second workshop in Hawaii, and um, a lot of things were formulated, and I'm going to share one of the things that I worked on um, in a moment. So these are the questions that we're, that we're writing from, uh, and these are the position paper, um, amongst other things. So from an indigenous perspective, what should our relationship with AI be? How can indigenous epistemologies and ontologies contribute to the global conversation regarding society and AI? How do we broaden discussions regarding the role of technology in society beyond the cultural, the largely culturally homogenous research labs and Silicon startup culture? And how do we imagine a future with AI that contributes to the flourishing of all humans and non-humans? So, um, this is not this is not just mine. This is this is a shared thing that was created with Kakumi uh, and um, a, a lot of people who cycled through our workshop table. Um, so don't post this online. Say this is from me. Um, this is just a draft. So I just want to explain kind of one of the one of the one of the thought experiments that. That I'm about to uh, write on and work on coming up. So uh, the question. So we had um, we had two we had we had two processes that we did. So first, um, I asked uh, Kekumbi uh, and um, another participant of the workshop, um, Isaac. Uh, I don't mispronounce his last name, so I'll say it. Uh, how do you make a net? Um, and how do you make a net ethically? So first. Uh, Kekui says, uh, we, yeah, there's a fundamental need for a net. This is making a net in a traditional way. Um, what am I making this for? Uh, you need to know the energies of the vine, the raw material, you know where they're from. You need to have the necessary protocols for retrieving them, their chants, their songs, their histories. Um, and how do you know those? You need to know them through somebody, through the elders. Uh, and so they're in exchange. So you have to sing songs for these vines, but that's not enough. You need to give it some ava drink. So in proportion of getting, it needs to be the same proportion of giving. Uh, 
And then uh, only relations can harvest. You need to be in relationship with this thing in order to harvest from it, to take from it. Uh, it needs to be kinship. And as you make the net, um, each junction, so as you're weaving it, is sealed with a prayer. And then, of course, the net needs to be named because naming is extremely powerful. Um, the net is consecrated, dedicated, and now it's birthed. And so the, the naming thing brings it into the cosmology of uh, completely intertwined with the way it was made, how it was made, and who it was made by. Um, and then, of course, um, you, you can't just throw it away. Uh, it's not trash at the end. It needs to have, um, uh, it needs to be put to sleep. It needs to go dormant. It needs to go back to its natural process. So, uh, but how does this apply to AI? How does this even work? And what's the relationship to computers? Well, uh, so, so the first exercise we did was like, okay, well, um, let's take this becoming a classic conundrum uh, uh, in self-driving car. Who's it going to kill? Like the, the baby or me? You know, is it going to kill the old guy just walking over the crosswalk or like the rare buffalo? Um, uh, you know, how does it make that decision? So the question is, what's the fundamental need? Um, who do we get in the self-driving car? Um, and then uh, where do you get the, what's the raw material here? Oh, what's the goal? Why am I making this? Least amount of impact. What are the raw materials? Well, the raw materials data. It's, it's actuary tables, it's, it's inputs, it's whatever I decide to feed into it. Uh, uh, you need to know where they're found. Maybe they're biased. Um, you need to know the protocols for achieving them. You need to know our genealogy of our data. And who's, uh, who's, who are you most responsible for protecting? Um, who do we ask who's responsible for protecting? How are we making these data tables? Where do they come from? So is our uh, AI that decides who to kill, is it an indigenous AI? Or so does that mean that we need to have indigenous data sets where we ask these questions to indigenous elders? Do we weight um, the opinions of elders more than we do um, uh, non-elders? Uh, and then um, what's the exchange? Like what's the offering? So I'd say, that, so one, one, uh, one thing was suggested, maybe it's cryptocurrency. Maybe time, every time indigenous community data is used, they get paid. Um, or maybe they want something else. Uh, so the data collectors, the people who are making these tables, collecting this data, need to be in relationship to the communities they're collecting from. Which obviously comes up when we talk about, you know, Facebook's just blindly collecting all of our data. Where does it go? Um, who's using it and why? Uh, and then, and then we have the very radical idea, which hasn't been tested and asked by anybody yet. Like, what if we had actual ceremonies? What if we need to create new ceremonies in our communities for these new entities? What if? Uh, what if these these, these entities? And uh, what if this AI that decides who to kill who to kill is a um, ceremonial name? And then what happens at the end? What happens if it retires? Um, uh, one of the people who was working there was like regression analysis. So maybe regression, maybe something else. And then the last column is is the same process, which I'm, I'm more interested in, which is how do you make a physical computing device in a good way? Um, and therefore, how do you make anything in a good way? How do you make anything ethically? So um, you know, we're talking about we talked about the right to repair. We talked about um, um, is it the silica? Is it the rare metals? Um, what's, what is passing information? Which metal do we need to be most concerned about the way it's being mined currently? Um, do we need to uh, rebuild connections with those mines themselves? Do we even know where those mines are? So, um, what were we talking about? What about bio storage, bio Can we get away from those metals? Um, 
uh, what about what's about, what's the exchange for these for these metals and for who's building these computers? Um, is it living wages? Is it sustainability? Is it research funding for things that don't need to be mined? Is it time for people's cultural practices in the areas these are being mined? Maybe it's cryptocurrency again. Um, and then, yeah, more ceremonies, more ceremonial names, and hopefully some recycling. So, great painting by Sergio. So, I just want to finish um, with. Uh, uh, me getting blasted on Reddit. Um, somebody posted a, an interview that I wasn't very much in an interview at all. It was in the Concordia newspaper, or newspaper from Concordia blog. So they interviewed Jason and and myself a little bit. And so uh, somebody posted it on, I think, the AI ethics um, Reddit. And they only have one comment, but he really hates me. Um, so first of all, he says, what? This screams nonsense. Uh, the quote is, in my own research, this is me talking, um, I had come across the idea in the ontology of rock and tidy volition, says Kite. And when I read Jason's book chapter, Jason's book chapter, I realized that the Lakota ontology spoke directly to his work. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, some people need to learn the difference between having different philosophy and believing in falsehoods. Rocks don't have volition. So, uh, which is an amazing statement because what it does is it reminds me that um, this work doesn't work very well for everybody, and it's and it's uh, it's such an essential agreement because it is an, it's a disagreement on an ontological level. It's not like uh, to think that rocks don't have volition is, is so separate from Lakota worldview. It's almost incomprehensible to me. Um, so uh, he goes on something about souls. Where uh, oh yeah, do any uh, oh then he, he thinks that this is all he he attributes all the rest of the quotes are Jason um, because I guess women it has to be a woman if he disagrees with it because the rest of it was Jason. So you're not treating something respectfully because it has a soul. You're treating it respectfully because it's one nodal point in a number of different relations that you are enmeshed in. Jason writes. Um, do any engineer, AI engineers care about souls? What is she going on about? She meaning Jason. Uh, no, uh, maybe that maybe AI engineers don't care about souls. Uh, maybe he's right. Uh, I don't know. Uh, which is why we are um, dealing with this question of animate and inanimacy. Uh, so no, that's why we're asking. Maybe maybe engineers don't care about souls, uh, but I think they do. Uh, and let's see. Yeah. He also writes, um, I think she should read what Western philosophy is actually saying these days. So it, that, um, it's confusing because I'm not Jason, but Jason's not a she, but no, Western institutions are not taking this up in mass. They are borrowing lightly, especially from things from uh, research areas like object-oriented ontology, um, and leaving the contextualist ethics behind. Uh, and let's see, and yeah, and then he goes on and starts to talk about how, about some about animal interests, I'm not sure, he writes, if I had anthropocentric goals, 
I could probably take whatever epistemology they're imagining and just set a few variables to make software that ruins animals anyway. So I, I and I think maybe it's conflation about indigenous people with um, with animals and wild animals. So I'm not sure where this comes from, but, but he, what he's saying is true. Someone has to design these systems. Someone has to make clear ethical decisions, or maybe we program to do it. Uh, maybe we program an AI to make these ethical decisions for us. That was brought up um, in the workshop. I was suggested that maybe we should make some AI aunties, and they need to live in a mountain, and, and make decisions for certain communities. I mean, that's kind of crazy to me. That's not that wasn't, that wasn't coming from someone from my community, but sure, let's consider it. Um, yeah, and then I think the final thing was about, um, as far as these goals of these people, the number one subtext going on here is the political and social interests of indigenous minorities, not reducing factory farming or improving wildlife welfare. I'm not sure where that came from. We don't really talk about wildlife welfare, but it's true. These are our political and social interests, and perhaps I'm biased, but for all the accusations of savagery, uh, these uh, these accusations stem from thinking we were too dumb to cultivate our lands or use our resources into the ground. And it's true, um, maybe we don't care about AI the way that other people care about AI. I care about showing how a code of philosophy is not just useful but necessary in an urgent way. Like the house is on fire and it's burning down sort of way. Um, so yeah, just wanted to throw in that little analysis of, of I think what are gonna be common and ongoing um, reputations of, of what we're talking about. So thank you. I'm happy to take questions. I'm super happy to take questions. Not about wildlife, so. <laughs> Indigenous people, or is the focus more just like on needs of indigenous communities 
what are the aims for? Yeah, so currently the first the first stage has been to to uh, reach out to as many indigenous um, people working in this field as possible, and then we met, and now we're writing a position paper, sort of like a white paper, but also have contributions from, from people to make it not just a policy paper, so we'll hopefully touch on policy and stuff. And then I think we're hoping to, I'm not sure, I mean, J Jason is, is really the, the spearheading this, but the I think the hope is to continue, because there have been a lot of interest, and, and, and there, have, there have been a lot of communication, um, uh, two different people, especially through CIFAR, because CIFAR is actually the uh, very heavy um, funder of AI research, so so through them, um, it's been possible to, to connect with other people and there's interest, but I think this stage, we're just trying to make sure we have a very clear statement over what, because um, it'll just get lost in the noise, but I, but what we are doing is very, very different um, philosophically, so, uh, but the goal is to start to open it up and to connect with other, other groups, and I'm hoping that I'm hoping that they'll, that, that that will be so so important. Like I can imagine us working with like Black and AI, which is another super like they're like super group now. But like um, to have these conversations across um, in the discipline across um, across different groups. Thank you for the wonderful talk. I have a bit of a follow up question. I'm wondering. Um, talk a little bit more about how non-Indigenous people can, um, can um, draw from Lakota cosmology, because you talked about that kind of being necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have any kind of ideas about how to go about doing that as a non-Indigenous person. Yeah, I'd say specifically, so specifically for Lakota cosmologies, um, well, so the thing, the thing with, um, it, it's kind of, what's nice about um, indigenous methodology is it, and as like a, as like its own thing, is it works well um, no matter which, which field you're dealing with. So whether it's AI, or let's say we were just talking about art, or let's say we were talking about like, I don't know, language learning, um, to me, uh, it all has to be done with, you know, with us, especially at this point, and so, Engaging in projects that are that are mutual and reciprocal, like all those things that I talked about, kind of make anything ethically. They they totally apply um, and draw completely from you know indigenous method, research methodologies. And so um, at this stage, it's possible. I think only through like real reciprocal collaboration. Um, I mean, um, my experience as a Lakota researcher has been that um, there's not a whole lot of there's no, almost no really good resources to be drawn from in academia or online, or it's all in person. I mean, um, the reason I, I, I quote Posthumus so much is because he's written something awesome, but you know, he's not even Lakota, um, and that, and, but he's done some good research, but the, there's more research to be done in order to have like, if we're talking about, there's other, other um, nations that have much stronger research and have, um, and are able to engage on, on, on different levels now, but um, especially in Lakota um, philosophy, there's, um, it's still the base, the, the base, the well from which to draw from is still being built, um, which, I, which I have found. Um, but yeah, 
ethical and reciprocal relationships are make everything doable possible. And I hope that these things, I do hope, I really hope that as long as they're contextualized, um, that they, they get used. And I really hope that um, as we open this up, that, that other, um, as we start making prototypes and stuff, that other AI researchers like really um, are willing to help, and, I, and they already are, um, but willing to make something and help um, uh, make something good. Um, account for what exists a priori and like humans generate like a human generation of data in which many machine learning algorithms take from and then generate its like whatever. Yeah, I mean to me it's it's funny because this um these a priori problems were haunting me back when I was just being an artist and just making um I just wanted to make a music interface. I just wanted to have a, like a MIDI keyboard that I could wear, basically. And I immediately, um, but it's in a, and to me it's the same, and the, the problem continues. I don't know who's making, I don't know who's making my, my computational stuff. I don't know the genealogy of my data. I don't know um, Rebecca Friedman personally. I don't, um, the, I, I feel like what's possible um, in, um, in uh, starting imagining new models and imagining and hopefully being aligned with, um, with movements to um, not just decolonize, but like uh, take slavery and, and like murder out of uh, mining. Um, I think these are all happening at the same time, and and it's like it feels like hold like baby steps holding hands to like show oh other methodology is possible like we can build things in, in a good way um, and and address the bias from, from the bottom up. I mean, if, if this was Jason's talk, he would, he would um, tell you all about the, uh, the Kanaka Maoli, uh, the Hawaiian um, coding. They're, they're, re they're writing code in Hawaiian and translating, tra starting by translating code into Hawaiian, coding languages into Hawaiian, and then I think they're interested in making a new coding language in Hawaiian, which is, um, which is people people write new coding languages all the time, but um, but it's one of the steps and exercises to be like, okay, well, one of the things that I wonder is, let's say we make all of this and we, we make a computer, and um, let, let's say we, we were writing completely in Hawaiian, what if it was the same? Because computers were exactly the same, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I think. Um, I think this is this is just one little field, but you know the real AI is important and um, uh, decolonization is important. But really, these are all arguments around the same thing, which is like, uh, how do we not murder everything and genocide everything? And um, you know, they're, they're, these are just one tiny little node on the um, on that com on that complexity. So hopefully, it eliminates bias along uh, along the way. <laughs> Yeah. Well, maybe we'll if we can stay after if people want okay. to ask questions or privately or whatever. Okay. Um, but thank you so much, Suzanne, for your talk. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. Transcripts for every episode are available at our website, disruptingdisruptions.com. This episode is also available in video format with captions on the series' YouTube channel, with videos also embedded at disruptingdisruptions.com. The Feminist and Accessible Publishing, Communications, and Technologies Practices Speaker and Workshop Series was founded and organized by Dr. Alex Ketchum of McGill University. The series was made possible thanks to two connection grants from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies of McGill University, as well as McGill's Department of History and Classical Studies, Media at McGill, the William Dawson Fund, the Movie and Image Research Laboratory, the Sustainability Projects Fund, the Dean of Arts Development Fund of McGill, the McGill Writing Center, and Digital Initiatives of the McGill University Library. Further support comes from Concordia University's Milieu Institute for Art, Culture, and Technology, the Institute for Indigenous Futures, Machine Agencies, the Algorithmic Media Observatory, the Intersectionality Research Hub, the Black Feminist Futures Working Group, and Cinema Politica. From the Université de Montréal, we received funding from the Research Institute Mila. Additional support comes from Riquet, Réseau, Québécoise, and Études Féministes, the Mutec IMG Festival, Element AI, and Les Grillons, Montreal's feminist bookstore. Thank you to the series research assistants, Ty, Judish, and Astrid Moore, for their assistance in producing the podcast. Please subscribe for future episodes.